I couldn't help myself. I actually did open the Italian ice and take a little drink. It's really good. You want to get yourself some. Um, the people watching online are like, what's going on? And sorry, you got to be here to get the full experience. Um, great to be with you here today. This is part four of the series, Going Through Creed. And here's where we stand so far. I believe that up to this point through our series, as we walk through the different phrases of the Apostles' Creed, most people, even non-Christians, would look at the things we've been saying and say, yeah, I get it. I understand why this is part of the creed. I get it why you're talking about this almighty creator God who, although he is so big, he refers to himself as our father and has this relationship with us. I get that. And people would say, I get it why you talk about Jesus as the son of God because no person could just stand up and offer themselves to be the sacrifice for the sins of mankind. You need to have the Son of God, true God, true man, to intercede for us. And so I get it. I get the virgin birth. I get the, the, the suffering, the death, the crucifixion. I even get the resurrection, you know, to prove that the wages of sin has been paid, and we no longer have to pay with death. Jesus rose to life. I get it. I get it. But what we get to in part four of the creed is where a lot of people hit a roadblock, and a lot of people at least want to tap on the brakes uh, and pump the brakes unless you have brake, what's that brake system where it brakes for you? Uh, automatic brake, I can't remember. ABS, whatever. What does ABS stand for anymore? Uh, interlock, I'm sorry. Anti-lock brakes. I'm sorry. Little, I lost it there for a second. But when you get to this part of the creed, some people just want to pump the brakes, you know, stop a little bit and say, well, what is it that this is really saying? Um, and the phrase that we're talking about today is simply the phrase, he ascended into heaven. He ascended into heaven. And some people might hear that phrase and say, that's awfully convenient for you Christians, isn't it? For example, something I think Ben brought up a couple weeks ago was um, this guy named Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism. His claim was that he received a set of golden plates from God himself. And he translated those golden plates into what is now the Book of Mormon. And, and, and he's the only one who saw it. He's the only one who could translate it. He wrote out the translation. And if you were to go to Joseph Smith afterwards and say, hmm, that's an interesting translation. Can I look at the golden plates? Do you know what he would have said? Sorry, the golden plates were taken back up into heaven. No one can see them ever again. And what I would say to him is, hmm, Joseph, that's awfully convenient for you. You can just say whatever you want, and there's no way to prove it or back it up. Now, let's take this into the first century for Christians. The apostles went out telling people Jesus was the promised one from God. He suffered, he died, and he rose again. And people would be hearing this message, and they'd be like, that's great news. That's real interesting. Can you just show me Jesus since he's alive? And what would the apostles have to say? Sorry. He ascended into heaven. He's not here anymore. So you just have to take our word for it. And reasonable, logical people would probably say, well, that's convenient for you, isn't it? You don't have to prove a thing. He just ascended into heaven. Now, even as Christians in today's world, you might come to this teaching and you might be like, well, that's a little awkward to, to say that he ascended into heaven. I mean, if you've got a non-Christian asking you about this, how would you explain it? Why did he do it? Did it really happen? Is it just one of those convenient stories to help fill a gap in the narrative of Jesus' life and death and resurrection? Where does this fit in? And the additional tension, I think, for me and for many of us is, wouldn't it have been nice for Jesus just to stick around a little bit longer? 
You know, maybe travel around the area, do some book signings, show people he's alive, um, gather the crowds, uh, just do some more things before he went out of here. Wouldn't it be nice if he wrote a few books of the Bible even? That'd be pretty convenient for us. But maybe, (laughs) you're playing the other side, maybe it's just convenient that he ascended. So that now you don't have to explain why he didn't do all those things. As you get into this topic, you land in one of two places. And as is true in so many different areas of Jesus' life, in this area, there's really no middle ground. When it comes to the topic of he ascended into heaven, it's really one of two things. Jesus' ascension is either a story that's convenient or it's an event that is significant. And maybe to jump ahead a little bit, just to let you know, all three major Christian creeds that we have all mention the ascension of Jesus into heaven. All three of them. So it has been the tradition of Christianity to look at this and say the ascension was not just some convenient story. Rather, the ascension of Jesus was a significant event. And my prayer for you, as I, as I went through this message and preparing it, my prayer for you is that you would move maybe a little bit more towards that significance. And here's why. The more you understand about his ascension and why he did it and what's going on even right now, the more significance it gives to you and the more power it gives to you as you seek to follow Jesus in your life. And even if you're listening to this or watching this and you're not a Christian, you're just kind of curious, well, what is the big deal about this ascension? This message will cover that detail. And perhaps as we as we take this next step, I I was thinking to myself, well, what is the best way to handle this? And we could have looked at Luke's account of Jesus' ascension into heaven. Basically what happened was all the disciples were with Jesus. Jesus was saying, hey guys, I've got all power and authority. I'm sending you to go make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching. You're going to go do that. And the guys are like, well, why would we do that? You're still here. You're the, you just do it, Jesus. And and it's then that they were on top of a mountain or top of a mountainside. And it says Jesus just ascended into heaven. And you just picture the disciples standing there with their jaws to the ground. And literally, that's like what the Bible kind of shares with you. They were just staring there, looking in the sky. And to snap them out of it, God had to send a couple of angels. Hey, guys, guys, what are you doing? He told you that you got some work to do. Now go do it. And so they went to Jerusalem and waited there. But as, as we look at this ascension, I figure... Maybe we shouldn't look at Matthew's account or Luke's account. What if we looked at someone from the first century who believed for a long time that this ascension was just a convenient story? What if there were a man whose record we had to this day who simply wanted to get rid of Christians and he saw this suffering and death and resurrection and especially ascension, these are all just convenient stories that you're telling to hide some big lie. And as it turns out, the Apostle Paul was that man. For a long time in his life, he was not the Apostle Paul, he was the persecutor Saul. He saw the ascension as some convenient story to hide the fact that Jesus was still dead. But it wasn't until the ascended Jesus actually appeared to Paul that he started to change the way he looked at it. And he started to see this not as a convenient story, but as a significant event. So much so that as Paul was planting churches 
across the Mediterranean area. He would follow up with them in letter. And he actually mentioned several times this event of the ascension and what it meant for the people in the first century, just as it means for the people today. We're going to open up to one of his letters. It's a letter he wrote to some Christians in Ephesus. We call it Ephesians. And he's going to unfold for them what it means that the ascension is a significant event. And here's, I know what you're thinking. This isn't one of those theological sections where he's teaching us about the fullness of Christ and all of his godly things and what happened here and there. This isn't a theological level. This actually starts on a personal level. He, he's writing this letter to some people that he loves. And as he's thinking about them, he says, guys, I want you to remember, I want you to think about this thing that happened, this ascension into heaven. So here's where he starts. Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 16. He says, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And this is Pastor Paul talking. He loves these people. But maybe more than that, as you look at the first 15 verses, it explains why he is so thankful for them. Sure, he used to be persecutor Saul, and now he's church planter Paul. But more than that, the first 15 verses talk about how God had this plan from before creation. Just picture this. Before God even breathed into existence this creation, God sat down with himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and he said to himself, Guys, we're going to redeem mankind through the blood of Jesus. And God, we can't picture this, we can't even picture the conversation, but before time began, before there was space, before there was matter, God had a plan to redeem you through the blood of Christ. And Paul's just imagining this. He's like, wow, I had a part in this. I simply shared the message of Jesus, and God's plan from eternity is now happening. People are being saved by faith, and they're being told about their Savior Jesus. And so every time Paul thinks about these people, He says, I thank God every time I remember you. I thank God that his plan from eternity is now happening. And now as he goes on in this chapter, he's going to kind of part ways with the past. And he's going to show them some amazing things that are happening in the present and also in the future. This is how he continues. He says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. A lot could probably be said of trying to decipher why Paul refers to God as the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then he refers to the spirit. Here's my short answer. Paul is just reminding them of the awesomeness of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, yet one God who has them in mind and who redeemed them through Jesus. He says, my prayer for you guys is that God, is that you would simply know him better. And here's the thing, quick application for you and for me. As much as you and I may know about God, and as much as you and I may know what God offers us, sometimes it's always good to know him better. Quick illustration of that. So we have some really friendly neighbors across the street, great people, um, They went out of town recently, and they've got three dogs, and one of them, they left at home, and they said, hey, could you have your kids watch our dog for us while we're gone, do a little dog sitting? So we said, sure. So we took care of them. Um, It's my three kids, uh, Jackie, Logan, Aaron. Jackie's the oldest. Um, And so they they took care of their dog, um, watched her, took her for a walk and all that stuff. And our neighbors, they're so kind. When they came back, they gave us a check for $50 to give the, the three kids. 
And so my first, th- my first thought is $50 doesn't divide equally into three kids. I smell a daddy tax coming. <laughs> and it's heavy this year. <laughs> um, but uh, we said, well, the oldest, Jackie, you know, she did most of the dirty work, if you know what I mean. So she got a bulk of the money. She got like $30, and then the boys got 10 each. But when we sat Jackie down, we said, Jackie, you're going to get $30. Her eyes lit up. For a fifth grader, $30 is a big deal. She started thinking about all the things she could get, and she was going through them in her minds, and she was telling us about some of this stuff. And finally, she paused, and she said, Dad, I just don't know what to do with this money. To which I'm thinking, I could think of a few things to do with it. Um, but then I was like, you know what, parenting moment. So I said, you know what, what Mommy and I do is we, we take whatever money we get, we give some to support the church, and we save some, and then we live off the rest. And so I kind of gave her that strategy, and she kind of thought about it, and she said, you know what, I do want to save some. I'm like, thank God, this is amazing. She wanted to save some of her money. So she went up to her piggy bank, and she got the other money that she had, and she pulled it all together, and so she had some money that she wanted to put in the bank. And along with that money, she wanted to deposit these guys. Um, she had gotten these silver dollars from a friend back in uh, Colorado, and you know these are old. They're 1922, which really old. And so I'm like, Jackie, you probably shouldn't deposit these in a bank. You know, they're worth more than a dollar. They're worth at least a dollar 20. I looked it up. They're bad condition. Um, But I said, these are actually pretty special. And so she decided, you know what, you're right. I'm going to hold on to them. And so she's going to keep them at least for now. And I I just got to thinking, she, she knew what she had. She just needed to know it better. And sometimes we might think we know about God and what he offers, but God just wants us to pause and say, I I think you just need to know what you have. You need to know it a little better. And as the Apostle Paul goes on, he, he wants to show these people what they have, they shouldn't take it lightly. What they have is so much better than what they realize. And so Paul says, here's my prayer for you guys. I pray that you may know him better, specifically, He goes on, specifically, this is what I want. He goes on, verse uh, 18. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know something. And he's talking here about something that your physical eyes could never see. This is something that God has to put in your heart, eyes of faith. This isn't something I can show you in your hands. There's something that you just need to receive and know from God himself. And you might be thinking, oh, I could finish that verse in so many ways. If, if you're a young person, you might be thinking, God, I wish you would show me where to live, what job to take, what college to go to. I just want to know you better, God, so that I can know what to do. Um, some of you on the other end of the spectrum, you're thinking, I wish that God would show me what is the right time to actually fully retire or when to fully start drawing that money from the nest egg. When is that time? I just want to know God better so he can show me what to do. And if you're a parent, too many things to bring up there. We just want to know God better so we know what in the world we're doing, right? Um, So many things that we wish God would show us what to do, but when it comes to knowing God, it's not about him showing you what to do. So much is about him showing you who you are because of what he did. This is how Paul continues. I want him to open the eyes of your heart so that you may know the hope to which he has called you. And um, that word hope, it means this waiting. 
that you know something's coming. It's just the waiting for it that you have to, to go through. Waiting to go to Disneyland. You've got the tickets. You've got the travel, all that stuff. You have to wait to get there. The public speaking, the waiting to get on stage. There's, oh, man, that's the worst part. Just put me up there, right? I, the waiting part is, is maybe the hardest. But Paul says, you've got a good waiting some great things in your future. It doesn't matter what happens in this life. You have hope that lives in God. And in addition to hope, you have this glorious inheritance in his holy people. Ben talked about this a couple weeks ago when we talked about God the Father. Um, God did not make you his slave, didn't make you his servant, didn't just make you someone who cleans up the mess after other people. God made you his child. As his child, you are written into his will, and you have his inheritance. I can't explain what that's like, but in heaven, it's going to be pretty awesome. There will never be anything left that you have to want for. Because God will be your God, you will be his people, everything he has is yours. What an amazing inheritance we have. It's like unbelievable just to try to imagine that. And finally, his incomparably or incomparably great power for us who believe. Just picture this, that the power of God Almighty is working for you and in you. That's unbelievable just to try to imagine that kind of power. Unbelievable power, unbelievable inheritance, and unbelievable hope. All put together, you know what? What God promises, number two, what God promises is pretty unbelievable when you think about the scope of his promise and his gift. Think about heaven. Never again will you hunger. Never again will you thirst. No more tears, no more death. Unbelievable. Think about the power of God. And even if that power doesn't prevent bad things from happening to you, that power is alive in you to transform you into the image of Christ himself bit by bit, day by day. Unbelievable power. An unbelievable inheritance awaiting us. Now here's the thing. What makes this mostly unbelievable isn't doubt over whether or not God can keep the promise. Here's the bigger thing. Get this. The bigger thing is that we doubt our ability to receive that promise. Christians can be bad at this, especially us Lutherans. We had a bad rap when we come into this category, but what we're mostly known for is when we think about God, we associate ourselves with guilt. God, I'm not worthy. God, I'm a horrible, wretched sinner. God, I'm, I'm miserable. God, I deserve punishment. And we have this guilt thing when we come in, into this discussion about God. Now, hear me right acknowledging guilt has its place, and that's healthy. But guilt is not your identity. It's not who you are. Guilt is powerful. Wives, you know that. You make him feel a little guilty, he'll do whatever you want in a moment, right? Women, stop doing that, by the way. If you can make someone else feel a little guilty, oh, we do, parenting, I do this to my kids all the time. Why did you ruin the table? Slime all over the table this last week. Lifted off the top layer of paint. You did what? I can make them feel guilty and tell you what, they'll do whatever I want. Guilt is this powerful, powerful motivator. But as Paul is talking to these Ephesians 2,000 years ago, Paul did not want guilt to be the motivating factor. There is something more powerful, healthier. 
and more lasting. He says, you know what? The power that God is using in you and for you right now, he goes on to describe it. That power is the same as. In other words, equal sign. The power God's working for you is this other power. The power of the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. You take a dead body, you bring it back to life after three days, that power is working in you and for you. Pretty amazing. We know the power and the medical things that are associated with resuscitating a person after a few minutes. Think about three days. Think about a lifetime in the grave. Yet God has that power, which he uses for you and in you. But it's more than that. See, Jesus, uh, God didn't just raise Jesus up from death back to among the living people. But here's where we get the most content when it comes to the ascension and its significance. Paul says, and in addition to raising him from the dead, he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. This is coming from the guy who once scoffed at the idea of the ascension. Seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, far above every name that is invoked. This answers so many questions about the the significance of this event. And it all starts with that power. The power of God, which raised Christ from the dead and then ascended him into heaven to where there is no limit to his power and authority, that power is alive in you. So much stronger than guilt, so much stronger than anything else. And then this answers so many questions we might have. Well, why did Jesus ascend? Why didn't he stick around, write a few books, Um, You know, come out with an official version of the Bible so that we wouldn't spend 400 years trying to figure that out. Why, Why didn't he stay around longer? Well, here's the thing. As much as we would have loved for him to set up a church across the street from the temple in Jerusalem, you know, the Jesus church, one church, no denominations, just one church. As much as we would have loved that, his position of leadership and authority would have been insignificant compared to what he has now ruling from heaven. Think about it this way. Back in the old days when kings went off to war, when they would win the war and all their enemies were defeated, they would always come home. And what would they do? They would come and sit down on the throne because that's where they ruled. Their kingdom was now established. And Jesus did not come to establish a physical church. His kingdom was not of this world. And so when his battle was done, He took his throne where he belonged, in heaven, at the right hand of God, a place where there is no limit to the power and authority that can be given him. Here's the other thing. When a king sits on a throne, that throne is an indication of his power and authority and influence. So what throne here on earth would be fitting for Jesus? None. He sits at the right hand of God, a seat of power and authority. There is no name higher, no government higher, no dominion higher, nothing. He is above all. And then Paul goes on. He says, as amazing as this is to think about where he's at and why he's there, the other thing is this, that it's not only for this present age, but it's also for the one to come. Sure, it's cool thinking about Jesus, you know, being in this place right now where he has visibility over all things, but this goes on forever. Even when this sinful world is done, even after he comes again as judge to put an end to all things and to separate everything forever, even when everything is new again, 
he will still be where he is right now. Deserving of all glory and power and honor because he is the lamb who laid down his life for us. And the Bible goes on, one day he will return, he will come back, he will separate people. And it's interesting, the, the way he separates them is based on how they reacted to his work as our king. Before we get there, third thing to remember, if, if you're just trying to put, your, put it in succinct format, what does his ascension mean? His ascension meant that his work was done and his reign had begun. You, we all know this. Um, some of you were working yesterday out in the lawn. Um, I saw at least one member family out working. Man, they were hot. Um, but I, I envision, you know, once you're done working on the whatever it is outside, you're all sweaty. You sit down. You have yourself a lemonade. Some of you have a beer. I'm not judging. You sit down and you just relax because your work is done. Every time you see Jesus described after he ascended, he's sitting. His work is done. There's nothing left for you and me to do. It's not like there's any more payment for sin required because he's finished. He's done. And now his reign has begun. And to understand like that reigning aspect, what does that mean? What does that entail? Paul gives us one more uh, picture here of what that reigning looks like. He says this, And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything, not just to honor him, although he deserved that honor, and not to make him comfortable. Like under his feet doesn't mean he had a little, you know, um, leg support thing to kick back on, lazy boy maybe. Uh, It wasn't just to honor him, but he was given that role and that authority for a reason. And this is the comforting part. He did all that for the church. You know who the church is? It's you. It's individuals like us. It's, it's us for the church. And we are his body. We are, get this, we are the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. You can spend 30 minutes thinking about that. It, it won't make sense, but I think that's the point. We are the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Um, That's a a way of saying that although God doesn't need us, God has a relationship where he uses us as his church. We are his body. And here's one way to think of it. The head's in the clouds, the body's here on earth. We here can do something that no one in heaven can. We have this limited time here on earth where we can be a light in the midst of of something called darkness. You don't have darkness in heaven. Yet there is this darkness of sin, this darkness of death and hopelessness. Is this life all that there is? Jesus says, you are my body. You are the light of this world. Shed that light and share it as long as you have here. And that's really one of the big things behind Jesus' ascension. You see, if he had stayed, Jesus knew what would happen is a lot of people would act like Mary did on Easter morning. Mary, when she found Jesus and she recognized him, she basically latched onto his leg and said, don't leave me, don't leave me, don't leave me, don't leave me. She didn't want to let go of him. And Jesus said, let go. I have to go somewhere, and these guys have to do something. We are the body of Christ, the hands and the feet 
to show his light in this world. And because he is the head, this is the good news, because he's the head, he knows what we're going through. He knows what the mortgage is going to be on our new building once we start making payments on that thing. He knows. Uh, he knows the struggles you're going with with your life situations. Uh, he, he has perspective over that. He, he knows. He knows what Christians are going through in Egypt right now. He knows what his children are putting up with in the Middle East right now. He knows what's happening to hamper down the sharing of the gospel in, in countries like China right now. He's the head over his body. He knows what's happening, and we are the fullness that gets to share his light. So as you put that all together, the, number three kind of gave us the what of his ascension, and number four is the so what. Because Jesus is where he is, his church can do what it does. We can be that light in this world to grow a kingdom that's not of this world. He uses people like me and people like you to create environments and to make relationships and to share the good news with people that even though they are in darkness, there is hope and light. Next week, we're going to look at how the Holy Spirit plays an integral uh, role when it comes to the work of the church. Though Jesus has left, Jesus sends his Holy Spirit among us. And we're going to look at who he is. We're going to look at what he does and why it is essential to, to remember his work um, as we want to be lights and uh, continue to sh show people the gospel, the good news, that their sins are forgiven.